Well, thank you, church, for your worship this morning. Let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 6, where we pick up where we left off uh, last week. Uh, I would say, uh, really, it would be appropriate to continue to say uh, happy 4th of July, because in my neighborhood, uh, we are still popping fireworks late at night. Uh, went to bed, and uh, I think I fell asleep about 11.30 midnight, and there were still booms going off everywhere. So freedom, America, right? So um, anyway, glad you're here. Thanks for being here. And we've got lots of folks that are traveling. If you're joining us online, welcome. Uh, we're glad uh, to have you here. Uh, we're walking through the book of Acts this summer, and this is going to take us all the way into the fall. And we find ourselves today, uh, we're going to talk about deacons a little bit. And uh, so you deacons better get ready. I'm going to come at you really hard, uh, especially our chairman of the deacons. Uh, I'm going right for your bullseye, right between your eyes and uh, a couple of you other guys out there. So uh, anyway, uh, Acts chapter 6, read with me just the first verse as we get started and we look and see what God has to say to us this morning. Read with me where the text says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray that you'd speak to us, change us, uh, let us look more like Jesus when we leave here than when we came. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I read an article this past week that was entitled Zoom Fatigue. And the article was trying to figure out why people as a whole, why we are entirely just over Zoom video conferencing. Um, I don't know if that's where you are. Maybe you love Zoom, like hoping COVID stays forever and like you like, you like being at home, working from home. Uh, there's some benefits to it. But as a, a vast majority of Americans that are stuck with Zoom, we are looking for an exit plan and we want to get off it. It's not as fun. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's okay as an option, but it's not ideal. What the article was trying to answer was why is everybody so tired of it? Like everybody sort of moved past it. One of the things they discovered in the article was this group of neuroscientists uh, put these, hooked up these things to these people's heads. And as they got on Zoom, they were sort of in, in measuring um, uh, the levels of dopamine that would go out in their brains as they were on the Zoom video conferencing. And then they would take that same group of individuals, they would take them off the video conference, they would put them face to face in front of one another, and they would do the same test. And what they learned and what they noticed was pretty staggering and it explains a couple of things, at least to me, in, at a very uh, beginning level. When the individuals got face to face, there was a greater level of dopamine that was released when we were physically interacting with one another in person than when we stay on the video conference. That tells us something pretty remarkable about how God has made us, doesn't it? It says that he has made us physiologically for the purpose of being with one another. He has made us to be in relationship with each other. He's made us to interact with one another. He has made us to, to be in the presence of each other. Which is, the, which is the reason why many of us were so eager to go back to church. And then when we got back to church, it was, it was so great and so exciting. And for many of you that are sort of making your way back in, because what's happening is, is that you are responding physiologically how your creator has made you. He has made you to enjoy one another and he has created you with a need for each other. We simply say this around here circles more than... Rose, right? This is interactive time, right? Circles more than rose. God has wired us to be in community. He's wired us to be together, and we want to continue to pursue that even as best we can in the midst of a pandemic. 
Now, if God's made us this way, and what we see in the text this morning is we see that as God's people begin to do the things that God's told them to do, and they walk in community, and they walk in faithfulness, God begins to bless the response to their actions, and he begins to hear their, their prayers and their cries out for lost people to come to know him. So they stay in their circle, though it looks different than our circles today, and they commit themselves to one another, because when we do those things, the inevitable result that God's word promises is that we begin to grow. We begin to grow spiritually, but we also, yes, we begin to grow numerically. God has made us to be in relationship with one another. Zoom and, and the pandemic, I had someone ask me this past week, and they are making a comment, really, that their fear was, was that people were going to get used to just staying at home and doing church. And that is the last thing that I think is actually going to happen. A lot of the people that, that we run with, that we've circled with, we, we recognize that this is a temporary thing. You try to have family worship with a two-year-old and a five-year-old in your house, and you will be thanking the good Lord in heaven for childcare workers and preschool ministry. Like, not a lot gets done during that, that window of time. But the other truth is that God has physiologically made us so that we need each other, we need to be with each other, and we need to be present with each other. In Acts 6, we've got this moment where the church is present with one another. They are together in community and God begins to answer and to do some things um, in their midst. If we notice in verse one of the text, he says, in these days when the disciples were doing what? They were increasing in number. Now yesterday I uh, packed up and we've been at my mom and dad's out in East Texas and as we were driving back uh, into Fort Worth yesterday at about two o'clock, I looked at my wife before we pulled out of the driveway and I said, all right, wallet check, phone check. And then I looked at her and I go, kid check. I've got five kids. Are all the kids accounted for and are they present in the minivan? Because I'm not hearing a lot of them. So she turns because we have a lot of kids and she does the count off and we count them. Why? Well, because we don't want to be terrible people and like leave kids, right? Uh, we don't want to forget our kids and, and scar them for the rest of their life. We want to make sure that, that we know, they, they know that we love them and care for them and we would not leave them behind, right? We want to make sure that, that that's true. But why? I count my kids on those trips because every one of my kids matters. And so when we talk about numbers and we see this moment where they were increasing in number. The reason why we count people is because people count. The reason why we count, it's not to throw numbers and, and to keep numbers as a, as a weight to it, but because every one of those numbers represents a person. And every person that's represented in that, in that number is a soul that needs to be cared for, that needs attention, and that needs time to be given to them. So we count because people count. And when we get to heaven, there's going to be what? People. Because people are our what, church? They're our mission. People are the mission, not the program, not the thing that we do. Like, like people are the mission. That's why what God has called us is to go after people that are far from him and to tell them about the worthiness of Jesus. But it says now in these days, back in verse 1, when the disciples were increasing in number, this complaint was leveled by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
What we see in the book of Acts is this progression getting to chapter 6, where chapter 4, we saw the the city and and government officials attack the church. Chapter 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira. We saw their, their hypocrisy sort of on display as an attack and as an affront to the church. And so God handled that the way God handles that. But here in this moment, in chapter 6, we see this progression where no longer are the attacks coming necessarily from the outside, but what begins to happen is the church is attacked through a consistent spirit of grumbling and complaining. Now, I want to say this to you just gently and pastorally. It's okay to have opinions and thoughts that are maybe contrary to to what you see. It's okay to to voice those thoughts and concerns. We we want to be a place of of openness and conversation and, and regularly getting better. But what we have to measure up or we have to sort of guard ourselves in the midst of that is that he is speaking to this notion and understanding in the text of this regular amount of consistent, overt spiritual criticism, like a a sense of harshness that exists, an extremely um, almost self-righteous and and like condescending spirit that can exist sometimes in the life of of God's people, not just towards the church, but, but towards our families. We can do this towards our kids. You can do this to your spouses or your boss or, or your coworkers. And, and what it is, is it's just this sort of slant of this spirit of really skepticism that that's given towards individuals. This notion that, that we're going to complain on a regular basis and, and what I believe wholeheartedly that is happening within the church of America, what God is doing is he is helping us understand that there are going to be more churches that close down because of a spirit of grumbling and complaining rather than persecution. More churches do not find it capable to walk in unity with one another because they don't know how to talk about things from differing perspectives without it being uh, this this overt and and this condescending or self-righteous demeanor where they're attacking and attacking and attacking. You know these kind of people? That everything they say, there's all, Tate Chesney's this way, like all the time, just something negative, something overly harsh, right? Right? Like what he's doing is he is speaking to those people in the midst of this. Brian Fitzgerald is like this all the time, okay? He, he thinks that, uh, he, well, actually, we have this in common, uh, that Fred's is the best hamburger in Fort Worth, or at least it was, uh, until, until it's been shut down recently. But this, this overt grumbling, and, and God will put to death oftentimes local bodies uh, where he'll just allow those churches to die because they fail to understand or they fail to learn and to grow and, and understand what it means to walk in unity. But this complaint that was given, notice that it was given by one group accusing another group. So in this moment, you have this complaint that arises by what's known as the Hellenists, and these were the Greek-speaking Jews. These would have been the families that were taken into captivity and exile during the the Babylonian Empire, Jeremiah's time. They'd have been hauled off to some foreign land, and at some point towards the end of their life, they make their way back to Jerusalem. And here they they find themselves in the midst of of God's people, these Hebrews, and these Hellenists are are Jewish people by, by conversion, some by family, but they speak a little bit different language. They don't speak Aramaic. And so the churches come together in the midst of of great diversity, pursuing unity. 
But somewhere along the lines, this group of, of Greek-speaking Jewish individuals were, were labeling and, and, and leveling accusations towards the apostles that they were being intentionally neglected to the extent of the Hebrews. And so they're accusing the apostles of showing favoritism. Now, churches do this all the time, right? Or we, we, hear, we do this indirectly or, or the accusation is leveled. And it sort of goes something like this. Well, they only care about the young generation or they only care about the older generation. They're, they're, all, they're the 20 and 30-something-year-old church or they're the gray-haired church. They, all they care about is senior adults and, and focusing on that group or all they care about are, are children or all they care about this. And what it is is that we are posturing ourselves against one another by observation. And the moment we begin to speak those things to our peers, to our brothers and sisters, we enter into this place of, of complaint. We enter into this posture of, of grumbling. Now, how do you get there? How do you get to, to that place just from a, a connection level of one-on-one of -on -one and, and sort of our interpersonal relationships that are there? Well, I think there are two things that they did that I think were wrong and false that we can learn from. I think, number one, they, they began to assign motivation to the apostles. Like the complaint was, like you care more about this group compared to this group. That you must show favoritism towards them. You must really like them a whole heck of a lot more than you, you actually like us. And so they are ascribing intent and motivation. Listen to me, friend. It is no way to live your life constantly trying to evaluate and critique or to speak for other people's motivations for things. You will end up a terribly, terribly miserable human being. When I was going through seminary the first time, it has this way of like developing this like overt, harsh, like gift. You, you, when you, before you get conferred your master of the divine, whatever that means, right? Um, you inherit first year seminary student, this, this spiritual gift of criticism. Do you guys know that when God saves you Pentecost, like the spirit comes and all of a sudden you have the gift of criticism. And so when you're in seminary and you're learning, like Katie, Dr. McCoy teaches this uh, in the college there at Southwestern, but you inherit this gift when you're a first year seminary student, like, you know, everything, and if you were the pastor, you would be doing it this way. And if you were, were the preacher or the ed guy, or the, you would do it this way. I, there's a hundred ways that we would do it, and it's not the way that he's certainly doing it. You receive this gift at Pentecost as you enter into the inauguration of seminary. And there were times when my wife would look at me, and I'd be sort of mumbling under my breath, or we'd get home, and the, and the ride was quiet, and she'd be like, Drew, um, we, uh, we, we just need to talk for a moment, you know? You've been in that place before? Your spouse is like a serious conversation. And, and, we, and I started wrestling through that and I began to see the, the, the pride that existed within my heart and in my life. And it began to take over. And I needed my, my bride in that moment to be like, hey, you need to check yourself. I guess if we were living in 2020, she would have told me to get wrecked, okay? Like it's time for you to get wrecked and listen. This is not how we talk about things. And I know you're learning these things, but, but just process them long enough. They were assigning motivation behind what they were doing. And the second thing they never did, they never actually went to the apostles until the complaint rose up to them. So they ascribed motivation and ill intent, ill intent. 
And then they never actually went to the people that could handle it and do anything. Instead, they just started talking. And Graham was whispering in Noah's ear about all these, these terrible things. And then, and then Kirk began to hear some things as well. And it began to perk up. And then Kirk began to talk. And he went and found Donald, who then went and found Amy, who was talking to Mike, who's also friends with Nathan. And then on down it trickles. And so they ascribed ill intent. And they never went to the source. And so here's, here's two quick things for you. This is totally free today, but this is totally appropriate. Two rules just in general to not be like the Hellenists. One, default in giving people the benefit of the doubt. You'll be a much happier person and a joyful person. You'll, you'll enjoy life a heck of a lot more and you'll have better relationships this side of the cross. When, when you give people the benefit of the doubt, and I understand that in certain circumstances, some people are not necessarily worthy of the benefit of the doubt. And so you need a good pastor or a counselor to help wrestle through that. But give people the benefit of the doubt. When someone misspeaks or, or they say something in a little bit a different way or a weird way, or maybe you would have said it differently, like give them the benefit of the doubt. They don't talk to you when you walk into a room. Maybe they're having a lot of, maybe there's some other issues going on in their life. There was a, when I was pastoring in a villa, there was this gentleman that used to come and every time I'd start preaching, he would sing during the songs and I would see him, he'd be joyful. And then when I went and preached, he would do like some of you do sometimes, he would just, he would put his head down like this and he would close his eyes. And it used to crawl all over me. And it, this went on for like weeks and months. And then I got real bold and I started walking down below the pulpit. I'd get a little bit closer, you know, like the teacher would do. And I'd go over there and stand next to him a little bit. And I'd talk a little bit louder, maybe kind of spit. I don't have my mask on. Sorry, I shouldn't be down here. Um, and, uh, and I would talk a little bit louder. And, and then, I, then I learned later on uh, that this guy was actually a police officer. And he'd been working all night. And his shift that he got off of was at nine o'clock. And he left his shift, he went home, and he took a shower, he changed clothes, and he came up to church. And he was doing every single thing within him, within his own fire, everything that he could do to muster to stay awake, but he had just not been asleep. And when I, when I heard that, when somebody told me that, I was like, oh, man, I am a terrible human being. <laughs> Judgmental, self-righteous. I was like, we're going to church this guy in Matthew 18 him for doing this, right? Like, we're going to fix this. But I ascribed this wrong motivation to him, default in giving people the benefit of the doubt. But number two, maybe most importantly, go to the source. Like, go ask the person, hey, what, why are we doing this? Or, or what you, what'd you mean when, when you said that? I'm not talking about just pastor. I'm talking about coworkers. I'm talking about Sunday school teachers. I'm talking about ministers. I'm talking about your spouse. I'm talking about your kids. Like, hey, what do you mean by this? And listen to, to hear them. Don't, don't listen to try to make a point or, or to put them in, the, in, their, in their place. But verse 2 goes on and says, So in response to this complaint, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to go and to serve tables. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God and to serve tables. I want you to notice a couple of things in the text. Number one is this, is that these apostles never responded by saying serving tables is beneath us. They never said we're unwilling to serve tables. 
They never said that that we've graduated from from serving tables. They never said we received a master's of divinity or a PhD or we have an MBA or we're more dignified at our work that we don't scrub toilets or work with preschoolers or, or we don't venture into student ministry. They didn't say any of that stuff was beneath them. They just simply made this choice to delineate between what they could do versus what they should be doing. And for them, the question was not whether or not we should be doing this or not, because they would say, hey, listen, we've been doing this all this time. But rather so that we can commit based on our gifts to to the the posture of prayer and, and the ministry of the word, they understood that they weren't going to focus on graduating out of a service, but rather were trying to examine where they could be most effective for service. Those are two very, very different things. Graduating out of something for for whatever reason versus asking the question, Lord, where can I be used for your kingdom? Put me there. I think for some of you this morning, it may be that um, God may be calling some of you into preschool and children's ministry. I think for some of you, you, you may have the time. Maybe God is calling you into, into student ministry or helping out with our college. Or, or maybe uh, God is calling you to, to serve in the context of, of our worship team. Like God is, is realigning things because here's what's happening to not just in Travis, but here's what's happening to a lot of churches right now. Because of COVID-19, churches that are oriented heavily with senior adult volunteers in the midst of the pandemic, guess what? There are no volunteers. And churches are decimated. My friends in ministry that that are heavy in that that area and and our seniors, listen to me, a lot of our seniors here at Travis, they've just said, listen, um, we we wanna come back, we we miss our church. We're we're lonely, Uh, we're we're dealing with like mental health issues because of this. This is a terrible time for them, but we we feel so, we're afraid of of what's, we don't wanna get it. And so we're just not coming back until something changes with with COVID. There's a vaccine or, or, or antibody, whatever. And so what happens day one that we say we're ready to have small groups, if that happens, if it happens this fall, in the absence of no vaccine, when all of a sudden all of our volunteers are gone? Well, guess what? In this room, in the absence of those leaders, I'm asking some of you to rise up and go and come. That's the task, that's the, that's the ask, that's what God has called us to. Don't focus on graduating out of service, but rather what's the most effective form of service. Look at verse three where he goes on and he says this, therefore brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So your, your task is to find men who can serve these tables faithfully and with excellence, full of the Spirit of God. So that means they walk with God first. That's the first criteria. They are men who are walking with Jesus and, and, and know him and, and are full of him, but men that are also full of wisdom whom we're going to appoint to this duty. But we, the apostles, are going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
So we're going to focus not on, in this moment, on, on serving tables, that we've been serving tables and taking care of widows, but rather we're going to commit ourselves to two things, prayer and a ministry of the word. One of the first things I want you to see is how he, he begins with we're committing ourselves to prayer. This is our first task. This is our, our first priority. As elders and as staff, we pray. Why? Because that's where we draw the power from the Lord. That's where God fills us. That's, that's where he redirects us. That's where he guides us is in a posture of prayer. Prayer is at the heart of pastoral ministry. For you guys that are at seminary or going into ministry, listen, um, there, there, are, there are some times and there are certainly seasons, but, but um, the question is this, if you're called, the statement rather, if you're called to ministry, you are called to a posture of prayer. You are called to a lifestyle that examines that. And, and churches are paying you in one sense to, to be prayerful, are they not? Like to come and, and to labor and, and to be with Jesus so that we can be with God through his word on Sundays or Wednesdays or whenever we gather. Everything begins and ends ultimately with prayer. Jesus' pattern of ministry involved this rhythm of prayer where he would, he would go to the crowds and he would preach and, and proclaim the word and then he would withdraw by himself. He would bring friends alongside him and say, let's pray together. Let's grab a knee and, and let's go before the Father and ask him to fill us with his spirit and to give us his power. And he says we will devote ourselves to this prayer and to this ministry of the word. Charles Spurgeon once famously said that if there is one thing in which you are to pursue a labor to distinguish yourself above all other things, let it be prayer. If there is one thing that you are to practice, if there is one thing that you are to pursue, let it be that you would be a man or a woman who is a man or a woman of prayer. But he goes on and he says that this devoting to prayer and also to the ministry of the word. And this phrase that he uses, ministry of the word, it, it really could be translated out in the Greek as just you're, you're preparing yourself to go and to speak and to teach and to proclaim the gospel of, of the scriptures. So he says ministry, he, he's talking ultimately about, about preparation. He's talking about this, this notion of, of showing thyself approved, a workman unto God, laboring intensively in this, out of the relationship that I have with him, my communion, my fellowship with him, making sure that I am ministering to people out of the overflow of my relationship with Jesus. When I get tired in ministry, when I get worn down personally, it is nine times out of 10 due to the fact that I have been laboring in my own strength and talent and ability and not laboring in the spirit of the Lord or out of the overflow of my walk with him. Out of the overflow of me being in his word, not to prepare a sermon or, or a talk, but just to know God and to hear from him. Like, speak to me, Lord. And every day we, we enter into this, this battle to, to make these choices, to prepare uh, this ministry of whatever God has called us to do. And, and it sort of looks like this when he says that we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry. It's like one's the left leg and one's the right leg. And what ends up happening in, in, in church folks that are active in church volunteering, how, how many hours do we spend preparing to do, to do events, to do programs, uh, to teach lessons, and we're preparing for ministry, but, but if, if that was representative of our right leg at, at, at full length, some of us would be extremely wobbly. Our right leg would be smaller than our left leg because we spend all this time doing ministry, but we never have a plan or a purpose or an exit strategy to pray for God to bless the thing that we're doing. 
Like we just sort of jump out there sometimes and we go and, and we run with it, but, but we've not sought the Lord in the process. And so we end up walking around like, like wobbly Christians all the time. We're out of balance and, and, and we're out of sync with one another. But we will devote ourselves to this prayer and to this, this ministry of the word. Years ago at a previous church that I served at, we had a work day and in that work day, um, I uh, was not assigned to the duty of, of prayer and ministry. I was assigned to the duty as the pastor of digging a ditch. And so me, alongside another elder, and I think one of our deacons at the time was there, we had a playground that was uh, capturing water, and so we needed to put in a, a French drain. It was a pretty significant French drain. It was lots of digging. Uh, it took us two or three hours to, to do this, and we ended up finishing it in the afternoon. It was an all-day project. It was back in the day when churches still had, like, work days. Do y'all remember those? Does Travis ever do those? Do we ever, have we done those in a long time, Carvin? Maybe, maybe a long time ago. We had this work day. We had, like, 100 things on the list that we wanted to check off. Everybody shows up with their kids. We start doing stuff, right? I was assigned to dig this basically ditch for this French drain. And so about an hour and a half in, we had this gentleman that was new to our church. Um, and uh, he showed up in like a pink polo tucked in with his khakis and a cup of coffee. And he happens to walk over to where the three of us were digging the ditch. And he's talking, he's cordial, he's nice, he's kind, very collegial. And all of a sudden he's like, hey, um, y'all are not digging that ditch right. I said, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, we were trying to attach the, the, the pipes underneath. So you're not attaching those, those pipes right. I said, oh, really? Um, well, how, how, how are we supposed to do that, Mr. Pink Polo Shirt, uh, with your tasselly belt, you know, sort of looped in and, and drinking your warm coffee as we're out here sweating and, and covered in mud? How are we supposed to do that? And then eventually he, he, I, I cut him off, you know, sort of mid-sentence and said, hey, listen, we got this. Thank you. Why don't you go back inside and wash down some windows, all right? We don't, I was messing with him. We don't want to get your polo dirty in this moment. But he was the guy that, that didn't understand that at a certain point, you, you can't sort of be that, that Monday morning quarterback, but, but I've got to devote myself and I've got to get in the game of things through service. But I can't be the, the one co complaining or, or, or speaking to. And, and I want to say this. I said this in the first service, and I want to say this again. Um, I've not been here long enough to really have complaints. Um, and so sometimes pastors will speak about this stuff because they've had a hard week and people have been complaining. I want to say this to you uh, just as graciously and as kindly as I can. You guys have been wonderful, like for me, over the past, how long have I been here, like six months, something like that, since November? I was telling Nathan Randall last week, um, there are days where I go home and Haley and I are talking about you, uh, not all of you, uh, but most of you, um, uh, just not talking about the person sitting next to you, but like, like we like don't deserve some of you. Like, it's like, what in the world? And I, so I'm not speaking about like, let's get in the fight and do things because you're not doing things. You guys are doing things. This group of men that's talked about in Acts 6, it's, they don't use the phrase deacon in the text, but he's talking about deacons. I am so thankful for our deacons here at this church. They're faithful men. They show up. They're, they're present. They don't just show up and are present. They're, they're godly men that are, that are walking with Jesus. They're willing to do the menial things willing to do the things that, that nobody else sees and, and nobody perhaps would even acknowledge. But he goes on in, in verse 5, and he says this, and what he says pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice this list of names that he's given because this is, this is teaching us something. He says, and Philip, along with Stephen, 
and Prochorus, the canner, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. Now the question that we ask when we study God's word is not just what is God saying, but but what is he doing with the words that he's using? Why, why did he give us a list of these names? And at first glance, you go, well, those are just ordinary names. No, they're not. If we remember from earlier, we see that it was the Hellenists that had issues with the Hebrews, the, the Greek-speaking Jews. If we know a little bit just about semantics and names given in the text, we know that when we read verse 5 and we see these names of these men, we notice that every single one of the names are Hellenistic names. They are Greek-speaking Jewish men that they have appointed to administer and to help the widows who were Hellenists. Why is that significant? Well, I think, one, the, the first prerequisite besides who are they was that they were men who were full of the Spirit, walking with God. But there was wisdom applied that if we appoint these men that understand contextually where those people are, they will be able to best serve them. And so it was just simply a, a matching, if you will, of, of backgrounds and understandings. It was contextualization. It's why when we send you overseas to be a missionary, we do this cross-cultural training. Hey, here's what it's like to live in this city, in this country. Here are the things to do and to not to do so that you would be more effective in your witness for Jesus. But verse 6 goes on and it says, they set them before the apostles, they prayed and laid their hands on them. And it says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then he makes this little obscure fact at the end, and he says, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It took me to about Thursday of reading the text over and over and over again, where I finally noticed that last little part. And I thought, what a weird way to describe a narrative, and the great many of the priests became obedient. And they came to know Christ. And so I began to ask why. Well, if you know a little bit about Old Testament law, you know that the priests were specifically assigned the duty of taking care of the poor and the widows. And so here's what happens. When the Spirit of God comes and Pentecost comes and he fills the church with his Spirit, and then all of a sudden it's no longer just the priest who are administering ministry, doing things for the kingdom to the poor. It's not the priest. All of a sudden it's everybody all of a sudden, it's, it's men and, and it's women. All of a sudden, it's, it's the Sunday school teacher. It's the volunteer. It's the greeter. It's this understanding of what shifts in the text, I think, is the application for us, is that ministry is meant to be a shared thing. It is meant to do alongside other people. It's not just meant to be done by the pastor or the staff. We're, we're here to equip, to, to do the work of the ministry, but we come alongside one another. And when we come alongside one another and do the things that God has called us to do, listen, the world that's watching, they see that and they go, I, I, I kind of want to be a part of that. This is unique and, and, and this, is, this is different. It's authentic living and, and genuine care for one another and they wanted to be a part of it. That article that I told you about in the beginning that was talking about Zoom fatigue, she went on to, to talk about how Zoom is actually um, upsetting the system 
of uh, politics in the office. And she said, what's happening because of Zoom and how they run little algorithms, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, um, how many of you guys, just by show of hands real quickly, when, when you're going to class, you like to be the first one there, like you go sit down front, raise your hand real quick, like you're down front, okay, teacher's pets, look at all these people, okay, right? So you go sit down front. I, I sit down front when I'm in classes, so I'll pay attention and not fall asleep, okay? And then, I, I, you know, that's, that's my motivation, so I can pay attention better. But she said in Zoom, uh, if you notice, there's always like, uh, people have been asking the question, hey, how do I get my picture to be the one in a group of like 10, how do I get my picture to be the one on the top left? Like I want to be number one. Like, how do you do that? And people have been frustrated with that and not figuring that out. Well, well, what it is is Zoom's just running an algorithm and they, they put you in based on when you logged into the room. So typically the first person in is going to be the first person on the top left of the screen. But then it runs another algorithm in the process of Zoom. And so over the course of the meeting, it begins to think pretty intuitively with the AI. And what it will do is as you begin to talk and participate in the Zoom meeting, it will move your square from the very end and it will begin to move you all the way up front. And so what's interesting about that is that the way that she phrases and uses this language very specifically, she said it is um, shaking and it is shifting the structures and the hierarchy of offices because we're no longer in front of each other one-on-one doing the work, but now we're trying to use the platform of Zoom to overjump our colleagues to get to the front. So we're, there, there's this competitive thing that's going on right now. They're logging in sooner to get access to it so they can be the first. Then they're talking more in the midst of it so that their, their face can be elevated to the screen. And she said, it's disrupting the structure. And she used this phrase that has just gotten beat down in culture. She said, it's a form of injustice. I was like, well, that's a little much, right? Like that elevated kind of quickly. And she was talking about the, the academic papers that are gonna be written on this and how every, all of this is just a huge game changer. And I thought, you know, it's one thing to uproot the system of, of injustice in a, in a Zoom meeting and sort of shaking that up. I thought, what a peculiar and strange way to, to characterize that. But you know, our God is a disruptor, kind of like Zoom. I'm over Zoom, I'm, I'm tired of it. I, I mean, I would even say, if I can say this, I hate Zoom, is that, is that okay? Anybody only shares? Like, it, it's terrible, it's not the same. Don't like it, I'm over it. I know a whole group of young adults that have just like gone checking out, like not doing it anymore. It's a disruptor. You know, the Lord's a disruptor too in our culture. He disrupted injustice. And the Bible says that he did that by perfectly embodying righteousness all the way to obedience on the cross and being put to death so that in his death, we may live. In his death, we can have life. And the biblical form of justice is this. It's not just simply tearing down a society. It's not just tearing down and, and building it back up into my own image, but biblical justice, don't miss this. If we're going to tear something down, we need to make sure that we build it back up the way God intends it to be built back up. Biblical justice is picking people up and bringing them alongside us. 
Biblical justice is found in the form of a person, Jesus. The Bible says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth that he is who he says he is, and you shall be saved. Pray with me this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us redemption and salvation through your son, Jesus. We pray now that you would convict the hearts of those that are far from you. They would confess their sins. You tell us you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I pray, God, today that you would help us, help me first and foremost as a pastor to defer on the side of giving people the benefit of the doubt. Lord, even as a pastor, I don't want to be a complainer. Lord, even as a, as a pastor, I don't want to sow seeds of discord. Lord, Lord, help me be encouraging. Help all of us be edifying towards one another. Let us spur one another on. God, would you help us change today and be more like your son, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, God's people said. I'll let you stand and let's respond in a time of song. Continue our worship this morning as we sing and as we conclude our service this morning. Come on.